You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, Carlisle. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nick Wirens. I serve as the associate pastor here at Sojourn Church Carlisle. We're so glad that you're here and joining us for worship to um, sing songs together, to speak liturgy together, to hear the word preached and proclaimed. Uh, over the last few weeks, we've been journeying through the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, we've been going through a sermon series called Wisdom, Life as Gift, Not as Gain. And what we've, we've seen throughout, the, the, um, throughout the, the sermon series so far is that uh, the teacher, commonly believed to be King Solomon, has been on a journey to figure out what is life all about? What's the point of it all? Why are we here? What are we doing? And thus far, one of the key conclusions that he comes to is that we, as humans, are small, short-lived creatures, that we are the creature and not the creator. This is a hard lesson for us to learn, but it's a, it's a good lesson, and it's a, really a lifelong journey that we as people are on. As we grow in maturity in the Christian life, one of the ultimate benchmarks that we um, look at is our trust in God, who is the creator. The more we trust in him, the more we understand this reality that we are the creature and he is the creator. We are humans and he is God. And ultimately, what we'll see at the end of Ecclesiastes and get a short little taste of today is that it should lead to reverence to God. Or as Solomon will encourage us in our text today, that we should fear God. So Solomon has largely been speaking in generalities throughout the book, looking at big categories, but today he actually turns his attention to a specific context. He turns to worship in the temple of Jerusalem. The temple, for those who don't know, it was the permanent worship place for Israel. It was the place where God dwelled. His presence was only experienced in the temple. So to worship him, to experience him, to be present with him, you had to journey to the temple. So this is important stuff. Worship in the temple is important stuff. There's a code of, a con- there's a code of conduct, a, a way of being when you come to the temple, and there is a right way to worship God. So today what we'll do, we'll walk through the text, taking specific notes of how this applies to Solomon's immediate context, right? Writing to the, the, the people of Israel who worship in the temple. And then we'll, Lord willing, walk across the bridge to our context to see like, okay, what does this text say to us now here today? So before we dive in, before we get too far, let me pray for us. And then we'll walk through God's word together. God, we do thank you that you are the creator and we are the creatures. God, we have to remind ourselves often that we are not God and that you are. Though that's hard, though that's a lifelong struggle, though many of us, like myself, long to try and be in control of all things and all places at all times, we simply weren't created for that. So God, as we walk through this text today, I ask that you would 
um, open up our hearts and our minds that as we look at um, Solomon's immediate context, we can learn what it means to properly worship you. And as we kind of look at our, our context today, that we can see really that the command to fear God is not just for the temple, but is for all of our lives. So Spirit, we, we know that unless you work in our hearts and our minds this morning, that we won't hear a word, we won't receive a word. We'll simply land on fallow ground. So we ask, Spirit, that you would open up our hearts and our minds right now in this moment to help us to receive from you. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So Solomon um, starts off in verse 1, right? He, he kind of walks through four exhortations. Again, remember, he's writing specifically to a specific people, to Israel in the time of the temple. And so he has four exhortations. The first one he says is, guard your steps. Verse 1 says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to approach in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do. For they ignorantly do wrong. So Israel came to worship for different reasons, but in the time of this writing, worship for many Israelites had just become a stale formality. Worshiping was just something they did out of habit and nothing more. We see in the book of Malachi uh, a picture of how the worship practices of Israel had simply devolved into doing the bare minimum for what they thought God wanted. Malachi 1.14 says about people who had kind of gotten stuck in this devolution, if you will, says the deceiver is cursed who has an acceptable male in his flock. We'll talk about this in a second. And makes a vow, but sacrifices a defective animal to the Lord. For I, God, am a great king, says the Lord of armies, and my name will be feared among the nations. So without diving too deep into the Jewish sacrificial system, okay, that's a time for another sermon, uh, proper sacrifices were to be the best of the best. So people's sheep that they were supposed to sacrifice were the best of the best. What was happening is that people would bring these like lame, deformed sheep, you know, the smallest of the litter with like a, a broken leg and kind of patches all over. What they would do is they would bring this one forth and say, well, I'm bringing this forth because I just don't have any good sheep. Like this is the best I have to offer. Simply wasn't true. We're going to kind of illustrate this. This is kind of like if you, you're asking a child to, to share with their younger sibling, right? She, she goes, she says, okay, I'll share, right? And then she goes on this uh, subterranean mission to the bottom of the toy chest and comes back with the doll that doesn't have any hair. It's got one eye and it's got marker all over it, right? It's like, that's not really the sharing we're going for, right? Easy sharing isn't that great a sharing. And the same is true for sacrifices. Easy sacrifices simply aren't sacrifices, so Solomon says the fool just offers up meaningless sacrifices in worship. He, he's trying to, to get away with doing the bare minimum. And worse than that, he's doing it for a religious show. Not because he desires to encounter God, but he simply is doing what he thinks he's supposed to do and trying to earn some sort of favor. All throughout scripture, we see that God constantly tells his people, this is not what I want. You're missing the point, right? Hosea 6.6, 6, which we actually see later picked up in Matthew, it says, for I, God, desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. Now, that's not like sacrifice like we think. That's like animal sacrifice, okay? It's not like 
uh, laying something down for God, you know, in kind of the 21st century term of the word. He's saying, I want you to obey, to love, to have mercy rather than offer sacrifices. He says, I desire the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. I desire intimate knowledge between us, me as your God and you as my people, rather than just a bunch of burnt offerings with no meaning behind them. So God desires that we have an intimate relationship with him rather than just going through the motions. He wants us to have intimate knowledge of him more than he wants these fake artificial religious acts with no purpose behind them. So he says, first, guard your steps. Then he goes on, he says, don't be rash with your words. Verse two says, do not be hasty to speak and do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. Just as dreams accompany much labor, so also a fool's voice comes with many words. So we see all throughout scripture that there seems to be this tie between foolishness and loquaciousness, or to say it differently, someone who talks a lot, a blabbermouth, <laughs> someone who talks a lot. Proverbs seventeen twenty eight. it says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silence and discerning if they hold their tongues. Foolish folks talk and talk and talk and talk. But if they don't talk, Proverbs says, then they actually, we may not know that they're foolish. Now, there's a really good pop culture reference that, that kind of speaks to this reality from uh, the show called The Good Place. I know we have some Good Place fans out there, so uh, shout out. Um, but in the first few episodes of The Good Place, the, the main character, Eleanor Shellstrop, she runs into or she meets her frenemy, Tahani's, uh, I guess, soulmate, right? He's known as Janu, right? He's this Buddhist monk. He has taken this vow of silence. And Janu, he seems to be the wisest person in the good place, okay? At the end of episode three, spoilers, uh, it's quick into the show, so I'm not like blowing it up. But at the end of episode three, what happens is the, the Buddhist monk who took a vow of silence opens his mouth, right? And we see he's not Janu. He's actually Jason, an amateur DJ from Florida who loves the Jags and who is, in his words, pretty successful in his DJ career. He opens his mouth, right? And he goes from being this wise person to this utter fool. So fools just talk, they talk, they talk, they talk. And when it comes to worship, they, they speak hastily and impulsively before God. But Solomon says here that there's wisdom in worship in not speaking hastily to God. We're speaking impulsively. There's wisdom in letting your words be few before the God of the universe, right? Jesus picks up on this later. He says, don't babble like the Gentiles do. You don't have to do that, right? God's not keeping a word count on your prayers or your worship or the things you say. And the reason is really interesting, right? He says, let your words be few because God is above and you are below. You are under the sun, <laughs> as Ecclesiastes has said, and God is in heaven. We are the creatures, and he is the creator. I should evoke humility amongst us, one that reserves our words to not be hasty, to not just speak impulsively. So he says, guard your steps. Don't be rash with your words. And then third, he says, don't delay in fulfilling your vows. Verse four, 
When you make a vow to God, don't delay fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than that you vow and not fulfill it. Vowing to God was a solemn thing. One that was not to be taken lightly. To vow something was to put all of your humanity behind it. To live up to it. But Solomon says that to vow something and not fulfill it, to say you are going to do something and not do it, especially to God, was to be a fool. Again, here, that this is tied to someone's speech and worship. A vow is something that proceeds from your mouth. If you're foolish, just spilling out words with no discretion at all, then who knows what kind of promises will leak out. But the text says that God does not delight in that. He says, in fact, it's better to not promise to do something at all than to promise to do something for God and not fulfill it. Now, in Scripture, we see both good and bad examples of vows in Scripture. And in 1 Samuel, we see Hannah longing for a son, and she makes a vow. She says, Lord of, of armies to God, if you will take notice of your, ser- your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me, and give me, your servant, a son, I will give him my son to the Lord all the days of his life, and his hair will never be cut. God, in his graciousness, gave Hannah a child, and Hannah fulfills the vow that she made to the Lord. First Samuel 1, 27 and 28, we see, I asked the Lord to give me this boy, and he has granted my request. Now I am giving him to the Lord, and he will belong to the Lord his whole life. Hannah was wise, fulfilling the vows that she had made. Now fast forward to the New Testament, we see an unfulfilled vow. In Acts 5, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira, which in the early church is just, it's crazy, right? But what happens is Ananias and Sapphira, these two uh, early church participants, they, for all intents and purposes, vow to sell their land and give the proceeds to the, the church, to this fledgling church, right? This, this upstart church in the, in the early parts of, of Acts in the New Testament. What happens is uh, Ananias goes to Peter, who at this time is kind of the, the lead dude of the church, and Peter knows that he is lying about the proceeds of the sale. And he asks Ananias, hey, is this what you sold the land for? And Ananias is like, yeah, this is it. So let's say for... for uh, easy numbers, right? Ananias sold it for a hundred bucks and he brought 80 bucks to the church. He didn't fulfill his vow that he made. What happens, we see in the text, it doesn't say that uh, God directly struck him down, but he died. And then his wife comes in later and she said, yeah, yeah, we, we sold it for 80 bucks, not a hundred. And then she dies on the spot. So it's not that they gave the land for $80, it's that they vowed to God to give the land for $100, again in round numbers, and gave 80. It would have been better just to not make a vow, is, is what Solomon is saying. So tying all this together, the, the last exhortation that we see Solomon make in verse 6, he says, don't let your mouth lead you into sin. He says, do not let your mouth bring guilt on you, and do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. What? I didn't say $100, I said 80 why should, you be, why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? 
See, again, the fool talks and talks and talks, and in talking and talking and talking, there's a propensity for promises to be made hastily and rashly, without impulse. When promises are made hastily and without thought, those promises oftentimes don't get fulfilled, which we see here, Solomon says, is a sin. Full stop, there's, it's a sin. Verse 7, it kind of ties a a bow on it for us. Solomon says, For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Again, there's that word futility or meaninglessness or vanity that we've seen all throughout Ecclesiastes. And the summary statement for Solomon is, Therefore, fear God. So many words, they, they bring futility, they bring meaninglessness, they bring worthlessness about to us. One commentator, Philip Riken, he notes, it's hard to be wise all the time. Yes and amen. And the more talking we do, the greater the chance that we will say something foolish, especially when we worship. Look, it's much easier to make a vow than to keep it. It's, it's also pretty easy to make excuses about why, we, uh, are not, or why we've committed to something and didn't do it. But that's why we let our words be few in Solomon's encouragement. That's why we should be careful about our speech and with the things that we say, especially in the house of the Lord. But the important thing is that all of this is rooted in the command to fear God, to revere him, to be in awe of him. So having walked through the text, what what does this mean for us, right? We're, We're jumping thousands of years, jumping lots of cultural changes. What does this mean for us now? There's two things that I think as we look at this text that we can glean from it. The first is to prepare your hearts for Sunday gatherings. And the second is to fear God in all of life. So first, prepare your hearts for Sunday gatherings. In the original context of the passage, right, Solomon is encouraging right worship in the temple, okay? It's the gathering place of God. It's where his people got together to worship him, to give him reverence and honor that he was due. And this is an encouragement that we too can rightly apply to our lives. So Solomon, he lays out serious exhortations regarding proper worship, but it's important to see the bookends of that worship, right? He first starts with guard your steps and then roots it in the fear of God. So he says to Israel, the people that basically got it twisted about worship was a, what worship was about, he says, you need to reevaluate reorient how you approach worship. Guard your steps. Think about what you're doing as you go. That means to prepare. As we said earlier, worship had just become this religious show for Israel. But the teacher, Solomon, is telling them to to rethink that. They need to be prepared, ready to enter God's house. Why is that so? It's because God is in heaven and we are on earth. There's that creator-creature distinction that when we believe rightly, it evokes um, worship and honor from us, from our hearts and from our minds. So Israel, they needed to reorient their worship. They needed to prepare, right, to guard their steps as they enter in, which begs the question for us then, how do we guard our steps? Or to turn it towards you, how do you prepare to worship God in our gatherings. 
Is your preparation like a, a frenetic but limited scooping up of like kids' books and diapers and snacks and rushing out the door to get here 15 minutes late? It's cool if you're late, but just an illustration, you know, it's fine. Is preparation for you like just battling this news button? It's like, ah, I love sleep, but man, I probably should go to church, you know. Is preparation, you know, spending 45 minutes like picking the right outfit to look your best for God or let's be honest, the guy or girl in the back pew, right? Or is there no preparation? Is this just something you do now, right? Out of rote habit. We need to think about how we prepare, how we can guard our steps. Pastor John Piper, uh, he's a well-known pastor and author um, who used to pastor in Minnesota. He has a great article called, How Do You Prepare for Sunday? How do you prepare for our worship gatherings together as God's people? He says there, there's two common errors as, as, we, as we prepare for worship. One, we can prepare as spectators, right? Coming to church, it's a lot like a, going to a sporting event or a concert. Though we say we're here for Jesus, we're ultimately more concerned about our own experience. It's about everything being catered to me and what I want, right? I need to have everyone making sure that I'm good, that I'm enjoying myself. I need my kids to be taken care of for an hour because they were crazy this week. I need people to come to talk to me to let them know that they are glad that I'm here. I need the, the, the worship band to do the right songs with the right instrumentation, exactly at 92 decibels, 93 decibels. I might as well be at a Bon Jovi concert. It's all about me and my experience. The other way, though, that we can run into errors, these aren't the only exclusive ways, but Many of us, we can actually come as, as workers, right? This is an occupational for pastors and occupational hazard for pastors and staffs, but it's occupational hazard for those volunteers that are leading worship or serving in kids or serving on the connect team, right? We come just to get our checklist done, to, to get all of the tasks knocked off without really thinking about how am I going to engage God through my service? Dr. Piper, he offers up three things that we must prepare to do as we enter into this space, as we enter together to gather on Sundays. And I think many of them can be seen in our text today. He says, first, prepare to receive. Prepare to receive. Some translations of Ecclesiastes 5.1 that we looked at earlier, they actually talk about approaching God listening. Here's what the ESV says. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. So we need to prepare to hear from God's word, to hear the gospel in our liturgy, to hear the good news of Jesus in the songs that we sing. And we can receive from God's word, no matter who is standing here in this pulpit, no matter who is standing up here on stage, no matter who is speaking liturgy, it doesn't matter. The constant is God's word and he can speak through whoever he wants to speak through. I've literally, I've had, this is an aside, but I've had debates about like, well, why don't just you and Pastor James preach all the time? You know, the professionals, right? It's like, we need to hear from other voices. We need that. And if we can't, that's, that's not an issue. That's not an issue like with the leadership or, or with who's in the pulpit. It's, a, it's an issue in our hearts that we say, well, we can't receive from those people. 
But God's word can go through anybody. If God can speak through the mouth of a donkey, he can speak through anyone in here. He can speak through anyone up here. So we need to prepare to receive as we come to our gatherings. The second thing that Piper says is we need to prepare to respond. Encountering God's word and preaching, rehearsing the gospel and liturgy, singing songs about the truths of God and his gospel, they should evoke something in us. If they don't, then, then your heart isn't ready to respond to his truths. Now, I'm not saying you have to like raise your hands in worship or shout amen all the time, though those are good and scriptural responses. But our Sunday gatherings, they, they may evoke confession and repentance in your heart. That's a good and right response. They may evoke surrender to something that God is calling you to obedience in in your life. That's a good and right response. But we should respond. When we gather together, something should be stirred towards response as we gather and encounter the one true God here in this place. So prepare to receive, prepare to respond, and then finally prepare to edify others. It's a fancy way of to say build others up, encourage others. This is so important, y'all, and one that I would argue in, in our individualistic, like consumeristic society, again, to get us out of that spectator mode where it's like, everyone come and do good stuff to me. We need to come here with the attitude of like, what can I do for others as I come to Sunday church? Not, not what can I receive, like how can the pastors give me goosebumps, but what encouragement can I offer my other brothers and sisters in Christ? We're called to, to worship together as people, to encourage each other. So maybe it's preparing and asking God, hey God, how do you want to use me to edify others as we gather? Maybe it's praying for somebody or just a, a smile and a hug that someone needs that you didn't know about. Maybe it's thinking through how to serve somebody that you know has had a tough week here. So I want to encourage us before next week, we can start there, right? Before worship next week, our Sunday gathering, just take five minutes, start with five minutes and ask God, God, will you help prepare my heart to receive, to respond and to know how to edify others? See if he speaks to you. You can do it Saturday night, you can do it Sunday morning, but prepare your hearts for our gatherings. The second thing that I think Solomon is teaching us as we kind of cross the bridge to our context is that we are called to fear God in every aspect of our life. You know, as I was reading through the, commenta- the, the commentaries and, and other sermons this week, like everyone was like, this is about like teach your people to come and be reverent and worship on Sundays. It's like, yeah, that's good. That's true. Like, obviously, like my previous point hits that. But so much has changed. You know what's changed? Is Jesus came and he said, hey, you don't have to come to one building to meet God. Right? Like, you don't have to only meet God here, church. One of the problems with the American church is, is that we, we've become so Sunday-centric, myself included, right? We've become so Sunday-centric that everything is about two hours a week. You don't have to come here to meet God. This is not the only place you can encounter him. 
We see in John 4, right? Jesus has this conversation with a lady in which he radically transforms worship. He's talking to her and she's like, well, yeah, my people, we got to go to a specific mountain. I know you Jews, you go to this temple thing and that's the only place you meet God. Jesus was like, no, 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 hold on a second. (sighs) He says in John 4, 23 through 24, but the hour is coming and is now here already, but not yet. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says, through my work, worship can happen and should happen anywhere. And this was a huge paradigm shift. But even crazier than that, y'all, the very temple that Solomon was talking about in Ecclesiastes, okay, right? The temple of God, that he says we should fear God in, that temple is you. You are the temple, church. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? Do you see that? So if you are the temple now, It's not some building in in Jerusalem. You are the temple of God. If that's the case, then this passage in Ecclesiastes, it shows us that proper worship actually applies to your entire life. It's not just Sunday you. It's Monday you. It's Tuesday you. It's Friday night you. It's internet you. It's mom you. It's husband you. It's worker you. It is all of life, y'all. It's not just here. You are the temple of God. And if Solomon says, fear God in the temple, fear God in every aspect of your life. You know what's scary? (laughs) Is that a lot of the time, a lot of times, those who are outside the faith know this truth better than we do. One of the biggest and most constant critiques that I hear of the Christian faith is that we as Christians don't look like the temple of God Monday through Saturday. Gandhi was uh, cited once as saying, I like your Christ, but I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Gandhi wasn't coming to worship services, so he wasn't seeing the Sunday, y'all. He was seeing the Monday through Saturday, y'all. Pastor James and I, we were were talking through the sermon this week, and he tipped me off to this tweet. Thanks, Pastor James. Hat tip. Uh, It's from the founder of the Jude 3 Project, Lisa Fields. No relation to James, I don't think, right? Lisa, your long-lost cousin? No. So for those who don't know, the Jude 3 Project is an apologetics organization founded and established by Miss Lisa. It's dedicated to helping the black Christian community know what they believe and why they believe it. And here's what she said. She says, some millennials resent church because their parents were good at church, but not good at life. And that's not like success, like they were successful at church and successful at life. It's like morally good at church and they were not morally good in their lives. Y'all hear that difference? They struggle attending millennials Attending a place that consume their parents' time, but never transform their private life. 
So do you see that? Like people outside the faith, they, they know and recognize that our faith should probably affect a little bit more than our time at community group and at Sunday gatherings. Church, Jesus wants all of you. He doesn't just want your artificial, pious Sunday self. He wants all of you. And I don't say that to to be harsh, you know, like. I say that because he has more for you. He has more to offer you. If you're only compartmentalizing Jesus to this little one to two hour block on Sunday, he's not doing radical transformation in your life that he can. If you have all these little like uh, compartments of your life, you know, like those little Monday through Sunday pill bottles, like, okay, Jesus has Sunday and then all these other things I got lined up. If you try to hide like your bank account or your, your browser history or your work or your relationships or your, your dating account DMs or your parenting, like whatever compartment that you don't let Jesus in, he's not going to like try and strong harm his way in there. He says that he came for the sick, <laughs> not those who are healthy or at least think they're healthy. The beauty of the gospel, friends, is that is we allow God to enter into every area of our life and fear him in every area of our life. We can rightly see gospel transformation in every area of our life. We are the temple of God. And because we are the temple, we need to fear God at all times, revere him at all times. Look, I think the the overall encouragement in our text today is that we should fear God in every aspect of our lives. Yes, like the reverence and the, the, the stuff about coming to worship properly, I think is important. And we should care about that. We need to prepare to enter and meet God Enter into, the, enter into God's place and meet him. But because of Jesus, like we are the temple. And the admonition to fear God is for every aspect of our life. If you are here today and you're not a Christian, or maybe you're like, well, shoot, I thought I was a Christian, but now I don't know. Like I've left all these areas of my life untouched by Jesus Christ. The beauty of the gospel is that you don't have to perform. <laughs> You don't have to like clean yourself up first and then say like, okay, God, I I got all my stuff figured out. Now let's go. The gospel is for the sick, for the broken, for the needy, for the downtrodden. (laughs) The hope that you can have, friends, is through Christ Jesus. Simply believing upon his work if you're a Christian or not, like that's the same is true for us. It's fearing God in every aspect of our life, believing that he really is the creator who cares for us. So my invitation to all of us is to fear God in every aspect of our life, to let God work in every aspect of our life, knowing that he's just going to lavish grace upon grace, as it says in John. Every week when we gather together, we partake in a meal called communion. We take this meal because it's a a remembrance time for us that we actually remember what Christ has done on our behalf. That we remember through his life, death, and resurrection 
as we take this meal, it's a pronouncement that he is our king, that we do fear him, that we submit all of our life to him. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not partake in this meal, not because we want to exclude you, but um, this meal is for those who are about the reality of Christ. If you would like to participate, there are individual communion cups that you can find in the pew back in front of you. So we'll take this meal together. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, as his disciples were eating with him, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Let's take and eat the bread together. On that same night, Jesus then took the cup, and after giving thanks, he said to them, Drink from it, all of you, from this cup. For this cup has the blood of my covenant, which was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's take and drink the cup together. Church, the Apostle Paul says that as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're pronouncing Christ's death until he returns. You are making a declaration to the watching world and saying, I believe in King Jesus. I will fear him in every aspect of my life. Let's pray. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.